The following is produced by Artisan Church. Welcome to the Artisan Church Podcast, a weekly broadcast of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. To learn more about Artisan Church or to support the ministry, visit www.artisanchurch.com. You may be having uh, some, uh, some body memories of, you know, of, of dark church basements, of elderly ladies um, yelling at you. Maybe that's just me uh, when it comes to flannel. So anyone not know what this is? Uh, this is a giant uh, flannel graph board, which is an ancient art form uh, back in the uh, mid to early parts of the last century that, uh, as I said, is a before is a uniquely evangelical art form that was designed ostensibly to help uh, kids understand the Bible better. So we are kind of taking that idea and making it even more epic here. And uh, what, we've, what we're doing these, uh, during this series is exploring the whole Old Testament story. Because what we recognize, even for those who did grow up with flannel graph, and sometimes because we grew up with the Bible stories being told in little bits and pieces here and there, and not always uh, kind of putting together, that, that many of us don't have a good sense of how the people, the places, and especially the underlying purpose of the stories all piece together. That's a little fuzzy. Uh, uh, no pun intended. And so... First week we kicked off with uh, the idea of creation and calling, starting from Adam going through Abraham and, and learned some, uh, hopefully some lessons there. If you missed that, you can check that out. We actually did a little bootleg video of that too that you can catch on the website. And then last week, Scott uh, picked up where that left off with uh, captives and wanderers, you know, how the patriarchs took the people through the promised land, all the issues there of of being captive, being set free by, by God, then choosing to use that freedom to just wander aimlessly, and, and how we could relate to a lot of those uh, lessons, or lessons not learned most of the time. So that we come up to this week, where we pick up where we left off with God's people in the promised land, and continue the story forward. Looking at this, this stretch of history in God's people of, of rulers and kings, from these little upstart tribal things going on to actual powerful kingdoms coming out of God's people. And so that's what I want to, uh, to jump into today. And so, as I said, we're picking it up where, where last week left off in some ways. Joshua was the one who led God's people in the promised land. He eventually, uh, he was already fairly old when that was happening. He, he dies. There's this leadership vacuum, and it just goes chaotic. God's people do whatever they sort of want. They're, they're incredibly, you know, unfaithful in, in the different gods they just sort of add to their, to their worship schedule there. They, uh, they experience frequent defeat and oppression, in part because God removes some of his favor to, to let them see the error of their ways so that they'll eventually cry out to him again. Uh, and all of this period is described in the book of Judges. So that's where we're going to start, in this era of Judges uh, that were part of of how God worked during this time. And so, I'm backwards. So here's what it says. So if you want to flip in the book of Judges, uh, chapter 2. We'll, uh, I like how God keeps continuing with us uh, throughout the weeks here. The hand of God is upon our flannel. So after this death of Joshua in the coming era, we're in Judges chapter 2, verse 16 and following. It's page 190 in those red Bibles if you want to be following along as we go through this. But what it says in in verse 16 is that then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the power of those uh, who oppressed them. So it was an era of judges, which we think of this when we hear judges, that's not really what it meant. They were, they were military leaders in times of, of, of trouble and oppression. They were peaceful leaders giving wisdom and counsel uh, in peace times. They, they were occasional leaders. 
It wasn't an ongoing role. It wasn't a constant thing. And so uh, what it says to the judges in verse 18 is that whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. And he delivered them, God's, the Israelites, from the hand of their enemies all the days of that judge. For the Lord would be moved to pity by their groaning because of those who persecuted and oppressed them. So they would cry out to him, finally. It might take decades. And he would, of course, respond in grace and favor. And, no, and he worked through these judges. Not, maybe not this judge, but he worked through some judges. Then uh, just reading along there, verse 19 says, But whenever the judge died, whenever the judge died, they would relapse and behave worse than their ancestors. You know, when you're in front of Judge Judy, you kind of straighten up. But when you're out in the hallway talking to the microphone, once you get out of that courtroom, man, you do whatever you feel like at that point. And they would. They were following other gods, worshiping them and bowing down to them. They would not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So God would continually just get frustrated and disappointed them and, and sort of leave them to their own devices uh, because his presence and his, his active work wasn't making any difference. So he'd let them kind of experience the other end of that. Uh, and often, actually every time, that would help them come back to him. But what we see in this, if we had to pull out a, one plot point, and of course there's many facets of this, but one plot point of this story is that in times of need, God will raise up a leader. Sort of a theme that we've actually seen in the weeks beforehand as well, that God could just, just reach down to the sky conceptually and, and, and flick things into place, make stuff happen. But all the times, it seems, I really tried to rack my brain if God ever worked apart from raising up leaders. I can't think of any. You have Abraham, you have Moses... He always seems to call a leader and work through them. And so I want to look at some of those leaders, these judges. And it turns out there's roughly 12 of them. That may be a literary device. They may have just pulled in 12 of the stories. Depending on how you count a few other mentions in there, there may have been more. But it wasn't like a hard, fast idea, which is part of the nature of this this time anyways. But there's about 12 of them, whatever the, uh, the number is for that. And I want to look at three of them. And let's start with what I think is one of the best examples, one of the most uh, upstanding of the judges. Really, for my money, is the, ones, the one that the others should be measured by. And we find uh, this story of Deborah in Judges 4 and 5. And she happened to be the, uh, the fourth judge, in fact. She was the fourth one to come along. That's, that's at least mentioned uh, there in the story. It says of Deborah that, uh, well, it gives a little backstory in Judges chapter 4 that I'll, I'll just read for you. It says, the Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Ehud was the third judge. He's no longer around to keep them straight. They go right back to the way they were before. It says, verse 2, so the Lord sold them into the hand of King Jabin of Canaan. So he just sort of let them be at the mercy or the lack of mercy of the Canaanites. And their king at the time was Jabin, king of the Canaanites. Uh, and also, the commander of, of Jabin's army was Sisera, uh, who also lived there. And then, verse 3, then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. So see the process there of sort of leaving them? It's kind of like someone who's dealing with an addiction. If, you, if they don't hit bottom, they're not going to ask for help. And God would take them through 12 steps <laughs> time and time again. Uh, cry out to the Lord for help. And then it says in verse 4, At that time, Deborah, a prophetess, wife of of Lapidoth, was judging Israel. And so it's kind of fascinating. She's the only woman uh, judge of the ones that are mentioned. But there's no grand scene of God saying, This is my judge. Apparently, her leadership abilities, her character, her her ability to speak God's word, which is the major role of a prophet, uh, as she was, made her the obvious choice for folks. So we see how that works as I read along in verse 5 there and beyond. It says, she used to sit under the palm of Deborah, uh, ironically named probably after the fact, because she sat there, under the palm between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites came up to her for judgment. So whenever there was a, a contentious argument, weren't sure how to solve an issue, needed wisdom, needed someone to be a final authority, they would come and speak in front of Deborah. 
But of course, while this is going on, the Canaanites uh, are still an issue. Even though God has raised up this judge, he's actually probably raised her up for such a time as this. And she knows she has to deal with this. And so it says in, uh, in verse 6, skies are clearing up. She sent and summoned Barak and said to him, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go take position on Mount Tabor, bringing 10,000 troops, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the Wadi Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. So what she's doing is, is being a military leader and calling upon one of her commanders, uh, Barak, to lead this fight to, to free them from the oppression and, and trouble they're having with the Canaanites. And then Barak says something really interesting to his, his leader. He considers her the commander-in-chief above him. Barak said to her, verse 8, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. So she is taken very seriously as their leader, this woman, Deborah. In verse 9, and she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera, that commander of, of all the Canaanite troops, will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. So she recognizes some of the sexual politics of the day as well and saying, just be clear, if you don't go on your own, you're not going to get the glory as the conquering warrior. And Barak apparently is a very evolved man. He's okay with that. And he's, you know, that's fine. And he's probably thinking Deborah's going to get the glory. We'll see how this uh, story twists in a moment. So uh, Deborah got up and went with Barak to Kadesh. He summons all his troops. And they go up behind him, following him. And it says, and Deborah went up with him. So she apparently goes into the battle. In fact, the song of Deborah, I think in uh, chapter 5, gives some of the details of that. I'm not real clear. Uh, from just memory standing here, but she is in the thick of it as well. So Barak is a, bit, is, is a brave guy, but a bit slow on the move. So Deborah, whose name means bee, sort of the queen bee of this operation, sort of stings him into action, tells him to get up and go because he's still waiting for something, uh, like her to tell him, I guess. So he does, and it is a sound defeat of the Canaanites. In fact, it's another one of those rather disturbing, just bloody incidents it is, a, it is a wholesale slaughter, practically, of, of these other warriors. Except for Sisera, who managed to escape on foot, which means, you know, he could gather more troops again, he could come back, but he gets away, Sisera does. So again, Barak does not get his glory by defeating Sisera. And he flees to this nearby uh, tribe, uh, this Kenite tribe, who is sort of like Switzerland in you know, a small scale. They're not, they're not having any trouble with the Israelites, though they're sort of related to them and friendly with them, but they're also not at war with the Canaanites. And so Sisera flees there, and he ends up in the tent of another woman uh, named Jael, J-A-E-L, who is the wife of uh, Heber the Kenite. Again, for there was peace between them, it says in verse 17 between those clans and the, and the Canaanites. And just thought I'd add this in here for some color commentary, because I'm guessing no one ever got this flannel graph part of the story. But it says in verse 18 that Jael, she came out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, have no fear. Guys, yeah, that's when you should be really afraid, when some woman comes out and says, no, just don't, don't be afraid, I'll take care of you. Either it's going to be a very codependent relationship or it's going to end badly, which we'll see. Uh, I'll take care of you, in essence. So he turned aside to her into the tent and she covered him with a rug. You know, kind of snug as a bug in a rug. She gets him all bundled up. She's taking care of him. Then he said to her, please give me a little water to drink. Oh, for I am thirsty. So am I. Instead of water, she breaks out the warm milk. Yeah. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him some more. So he is all bundled up. He's sleepy, some warm milk. You can, you can almost hear the music start to come in, the kind of lightly rising. It's getting a little creepy. He's drifting off to sleep, and as he's falling asleep, he said to her, just stand at the entrance of the tent, and if anyone comes and asks you, is anyone here, say no. And she agrees that I will say there's no one 
here when the next person comes to the tent flap. And so here's what happens with, the, with Jael. Another strong woman here in this story. It says, But Jael, wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly to him. You know, Killing me softly with your song? This is a little, little different version of that. And uh, drove the peg into his temple. You know, so just, just kind of pounds that into his head. Not just a a, bru- a glancing blow. It says uh, she drove the pig into his temple until it went down into the ground. <laughs> flannel graph, right? You'd have liked flannel graph a lot more if there'd been more tent pigs or heads, right? So she pins his head to the ground. He was lying fast asleep from weariness, and of course, he died. It says then, as Barak came in pursuit of Sisera, because he was still going to try to get his glory. It says, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, come and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into the tent and there was Sisera lying dead with the tent pig in his temple. Actually, it was the woman's duty to raise the tents, to put them all together. So the ones who did that would tend to be, you know, some upper body strength. So. But it's fascinating. Just as we've looked at this in times of need, God raises up leaders. There's a great couple examples who are unusual Merely in the fact that they are women makes them a little unusual in a patriarchal society. But I also love this little JL interlude that's thrown in there because she's a Gentile woman who is still used by God. And then all of chapter 5 is called the Song of Deborah. It's just a famous epic poem that perhaps she had a hand in writing. She may have been gifted in that way as well. That mentions all these women. It mentions Deborah. And and then it also mentions mentions Barak in, in his war. It also mentions jail, and it even mentions at the end of it, Sisera's mom, who's waiting for him to come home. Yeah, sad story, mom. Tent peg to the head. He ain't coming back. Until it gets to the end, and there's that song. In the end of the verse, I'm, I'm sorry, that was mean of me. Uh, at the very last verse of chapter 5, It says that the land had rest 40 years. And so you get a sense that this is the purpose of God raising up the leaders, to give a shalom peace to his people. And it can last for a while. In this case, Deborah had a pretty long run. Either she was alive that whole time, which is sort of how these tend to go. She lived another 40 years, which probably meant she was judging folks, uh, being their leader from a relatively young age. So she, not only is she a woman, she was a young woman. Did this for 40 years. Uh, and so here's this Deborah, this great example of a leader, of a judge during this era. And as I sort of look at her characteristics and, and who she is here, you get a sense that she's sort of class president, uh, Steve Holt. For, uh, sort of class president, anyone? Yes. Steve Holt. Uh, class president, uh, homecoming queen, captain of the field hockey team, all wrapped into one. She is really an amazing woman, which sort of begs the question, does God only pick those folks? Does God only use the best and the brightest to lead? It's a fair question, right? Sometimes the way we hear these stories, we're led to believe that, partly because we get, you know, again, no pun intended, the flannel graph version, the kids' Bible version that just sort of says all the high points. And so everyone looks like a hero, whereas I said many times, there's only one hero in the Bible, and it, and it isn't even Deborah. And she's a pretty fascinating woman. If God only uses the best and the brightest, then artisans in trouble. Uh, but really, all of us are. And our ability to be used by God to lead, is we're, we're out of the running, most of us, because we're not the best. I'm not the brightest. And so let me give two other quick examples that will, will prove that that is not the case. Uh, the next one is actually the judge who followed Deborah. I keep wanting to say Judy. Uh, that's, um, judge Judy. The, uh, the next judge who followed Deborah, um, but again, they didn't follow immediately. It wasn't like one got done and then someone else got another uh, 20, 40-year term. Uh, trouble comes on the scene again. Uh, partially, I'm guessing, because the Canaanites have been put down their abilities, now these surrounding tribes, in this case the uh, Midianites, are able to come raid and steal stuff after Deborah dies. 
And we hear the story of Gideon. He's the, uh, the fifth judge. And his, uh, his stuff is found in Judges chapter 6 through 8, if you want to kind of check this out as, as we're reading together. But uh, basically starts off in Judges chapter 6, verse 11, where it says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak at Ophrah, which belonged to uh, Joaz the Abizarite, as his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. So when you thresh wheat, you throw it up in the air so the wind will blow the chaff away. A wine press would be this stone-lined pit. So he is now down in this stone pit, having to throw wheat even higher in the air, probably failing miserably, but he's hiding because he's kind of the nerd. If she's the homecoming queen, he's the nerd of the judges. He's got to wait till everyone leaves because whenever he walks home from school, he gets beat up. That's, that's this guy. That's... Um, that's our friend Gideon, who's floating around here somewhere. <laughs> we'll just imagine he is there. Or he's right here. There you go. So, uh, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. So, dripping with irony, right? It's like him saying, Ethan, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Would you think that was kind of a little bit of a joke? Well, that's what Gideon said. He said, you've got to be playing a joke on me. So he talks to God, or the angel of the Lord there, and says, if God is with us, why are the Midianites, you know, stealing my lunch every day? Why? I'm really not a mighty warrior. And so go through a little, uh, little proof of concept here, where he brings out uh, a, a kid goat that he's, uh, he's dressed for. <laughs> that all sounds funny. He's uh, prepared for sacrifice, some other things. He puts him on an altar there, and this angel of the Lord touches it with his walking stick, and it bursts into flames, and then Gideon gets it. All right, I am somehow in the presence of God here uh, in a special way. And so Gideon is, is willing to, uh, to follow through now on God calling him to be the leader of, of his people. And so he reluctantly begins to follow. He gets a small wind under his belt where he... Des- desecrates this, uh, this altar to Baal, one of the false gods they had fallen into worship with, and, and often would again and again. That comes back often. Uh, he desecrates it, destroys it, uh, but he does it so no one can see it. Of course, everyone clearly finds out, and then they find out he's the one. They all want to kill him, the townspeople. And so, of course, his dad steps in, because again, this is Gideon, and said, don't, please don't kill my son. But his dad says something really wise. He says, if this Baal is such a powerful God, why was Gideon able to just kick over his altar here? Why don't you let Baal take care of himself? Some kind of fatherly wisdom there. And they actually take that. So Gideon gets some street cred there with the folks, and he's able to gather 32,000 troops to take on these Midianites that keep raiding and and oppressing them and giving them a hard time. Uh, But he still wants to be sure about God. And this brings in that, that most famous story of Gideon. The, uh, the story with the fleece. And so, uh, so Gideon, he's now a little braver now, standing up here with the... Uh, God's going to be on the scene here again. It says uh, he wanted to test God to really be convinced, because he's, again, not terribly brave. It says, then Gideon said to God, Judges chapter 6, verse 36 is where we're picking this up. In order to see whether you will deliver Israel by my hand, as you have said, I am going to lay a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will deliver Israel by your hand, as you have said. Verse 38 says, And it was so. God does just that. He's, uh, he's got good aim. He uh, makes sure that only the fleece is wet so that the next morning when Gideon comes out to pick up the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl of water. So he's good to go, right? Eh, not so fast. Verse 39. And I love how, how sheepish, uh, another pun I suppose, and apologetic Gideon is. It's clear that this is not a brave guy. He's no, he's no Deborah. He's the guy who would sit there wishing he could ask her out and never would, even though there's 60 years difference between them. But 
He's the nerd of this whole deal. And he says in verse 39, Gideon said to God, do not let your anger burn against me, please. Let me speak one more time. Let me please make trial with the fleece just once more. Let it be dry only on the fleece and on all the ground. Let there be dew. And God did so that night. So uh, God, God now misses the fleece and um, just the ground <laughs> is wet. And so he makes it so, and Gideon's convinced. God's really going to come through for us. So he has all those troops that he's gathered. And then God says something very interesting. He says, all those troops, uh, chapter 7, verse 2, the troops that you have are way too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Israel would only take credit for themselves would only take the credit away from me, saying, my own hand has delivered me. And so he challenges Gideon. He gives Gideon a command to to call these troops down. It turns out that these troops are a lot like Gideon. They're not the bravest crew anyways. So Gideon asks, you know, who's a little bit afraid here? Who's sort of shaking in your boots a little bit? 22,000 of them raise their hand. He says, oh, come on. All right, go home. So he sends 22,000 home. All they have left is 10,000. Really not a lot to secure victory. God says, "Eh, still too much. Because what you're going to say now is, you know, it was hard, but we still pulled it off. Right? And so he says, have them drink there at the edge of the water. And so they all go to drink out of the river. And all of them kneel down like you would because you're about to go into war. Get down one knee, cup it with your hand, drink some water. All of them did that except for 300. 300 of them just sort of went face first in the water, lapped it up like a dog. Not, again, the brightest folks, and God says, they're the ones. I'll take them. And so he sends home. They're not on the bench. They're not back up. The other 9,300 go home. And all Gideon is left with is these 300 mouth breathers that, you know, don't have the good sense to, to be ready for war and just kind of plunge their head. It's, it's not a sharp group. And then he gives them this crazy plan where he, he says, give everyone a, uh, a clay jar, big clay jar, that, uh, that you're going to put uh, torches inside that are lit, but they're hidden in the dark, and give everyone a trumpet. He is literally arming the AV club and the band geeks for war. It's going to be a light show, and a little bit of music. So they head out. We find in Judges chapter 7, verse 7 and 8, Then the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 that lapped up the water, I will deliver you. Give the Midianites into their hand. Let all the others go to their home. So he took the jars of the troops from their hands and their trumpets and sent all the rest of Israel back to their own tents, but retained the 300. Then it says in verse 20, So the three companies, they split into three groups of 100. They surround the Midianites. It says they blew the trumpets and broke these jars so that the torches are then revealed. And it says, holding in their left hand the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow, they cried, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. So they have a great cheer. And it says, every man stood in his place all around the camp. They don't attack or do anything. They're literally blowing trumpets and waving torches. 300 band geeks in the AV club led by the nerd. And it says, every man stood in place all around the camp and all the men in the camp ran and they cried out and fled. And it describes just the chaos and terror that comes over the Midianites. They're terrified. So they take out their swords and they just start hacking and slashing till they kill almost every one of themselves without these guys ever having to draw the sword a fascinating twist on them not having to do the battle. It's still kind of human tragedy that the Midianites uh, wanted to live by the sword and therefore die by the sword. So they're delivered. They have victory. And what we find out in, that, in, in this story, I think the big plot point here is that, yes, God's using these leaders and, and calls great ones and so-so ones. But the plot point that I get out of this is that God is the one who secures the true victory. 
that any other victory apart from God being the author of that uh, is probably a false one that won't last. And again, these folks were all part of it. This was real war here. This was a light music show here. He used different methods. He still uses people. So it's not like we can be uninvolved. Um, but he's the one that brings the true victory. Uh, and then real briefly, let me uh, finish with this last one, only because it's one of the more famous ones, uh, Samson. How many th- remember uh, the story of Samson? He's actually the 12th judge, the final one in, in the stories as they're described. But most of us have heard the story of Samson as though he was this great and powerful guy who had, you know, made a few mistakes. But really, he is the worst judge of them all. Uh, he's just a horrible person. Uh, And again, I find it fascinating that God still called him and used him really in spite of himself. Uh, So best and the brightest clearly is not a prerequisite. Um, But just, he's the worst stereotype. If this is homecoming queen, this is the nerd, uh, the worst stereotype of the the dumb jock. Now there's there's not, there's smart jocks and and nice guys who play sports. Imagine the worst movie-ready stereotype, though. And this was Samson. Uh, amoral, uh, nothing seemed to go wrong for him, at least early on. He had a deep sense of entitlement. Uh, he's famous, uh, you know, for killing the lion just because, uh, you know, he needed something to do in one of his roid rages there. Uh, he kills a lion, which uh, he just leaves a dead body there in the ditch. How do we know this? Because weeks or months later, he comes back and the carcass is still there. Only this time it's filled with honeybees. So he thinks, you know, I'll just scoop some of that out and eat it. I gorges himself on honey, takes some as a gift. Now, this seems like, you know, great find, some honey. He was a Nazarite from birth, which means he took special vows. In fact, his mother did when he was in the womb. His mother stopped, I don't know if she was a heavy drinker, but she stopped drinking while he was in the womb. Uh, because when you took a Nazarite vow, there was things like not drinking alcohol, not cutting your hair, keeping cleanliness laws, which would include not desecrating yourself with dead things. And here he's... He's eating honey from the, who knows which end of the dead lion at that. Um, not only that, but he gives it as a gift to other people, and he doesn't tell them. This has been baking in a lion, you know, the bowels of a dead lion for who knows how many weeks here. You know, enjoy. We're not making that during the uh, Black Friday gift-making stuff, by the way. There will not be uh, oh, if this was a 5 p.m., I would say something very different right now. But uh, So, uh, I'll save that for Horrible guy, as I said. He, uh, he's terrible with women. He marries this nagging one who, uh, who tricks him into telling the, uh, the solution to a riddle that he has some money riding on. She tricks him into that, and uh, he goes into another blind rage, goes off and kills 30 Philistines, who are the ones who are annoying and, and being difficult with the, the uh, Israelites. He goes and kills 30 Philistines to, to get it off his chest and also to take their stuff to pay off the bet he owes now. Uh, he leaves his wife, he's done with her. Then he changes his mind, comes back later on to his father-in-law, only to find out his wife is now living with his best man from his wedding. I mean, it is, it is drama through and through. Uh, he gets so mad, he says, I'm just going to burn down all the fields. He catches, you know the story of catching the, the 300 foxes and tying their tails together, putting a torch between it, and burning down all the fields? That's, th- that's this guy, one of God's judges. Uh, the villagers get understandably upset, find out it's sort of the father-in-law's fault, though really it's Samson's fault, but Samson's not around anymore and he, he's kind of strong, so instead they, they burn down the father-in-law's house and family. Fascinating. Uh, he, kills a hundred, uh, he kills a thousand Philistines with a jawbone of an ass, another dead animal thing, violating his vows. Visits a prostitute, ends up shacking up with this Delilah character who, not real clear, she's... Uh, she has his best interests in mind. And so I'll, we'll get off of Samson here with, uh, with the Delilah story. But uh, she finds out, she wants to find out where his strength lies. And uh, it, it lies in the vows he's taken as a Nazarite, which its outward symbol of that is, is his hair not being cut. And so she keeps asking him to tell him. He tells her a lie. She ties him up. He, then she yells, the Philistines are here. And he breaks out. And instead of saying, why were you trying to tie me up? She starts crying and saying, why did you lie to me? And he says, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then he tells her another lie. Until finally, she says, you really don't love me, or you'd tell me. 
where your strength is. He's just, he's not getting what's going on. And so um, he finally tells her that it's uh, the haircut issue. And so she has someone come while he's sleeping. She likes playing with his hair. And, uh, and they cut it. And he's captured by the Philistines. They gouge out his eyes. And apparently God is not going to deliver his people. Because this guy that God picked was such a complete and utter loser that it was God was going to end up failing now because he'd relied on that guy. So at the end of Samson's life, blind as a, a trophy, chained between two pillars in this giant structure that housed all the Philistine uh, leaders and apparently more than a thousand troops and people were in this giant structure, large building. Uh, Samson gives a, a last prayer. It's not a repentant prayer. It's not a grace-filled prayer. It is not a prayer of, of God, I really, I really want you to deliver Israel. Instead, it's a prayer of, God, give me vengeance on those who have taken my sight. And God actually answers that prayer of Samson, even though it's, it's really a selfish, evil prayer, because he's answering the prayer of, of the Israelites. Samson finally has strength, pushes the pillars out, the whole thing falls in and wipes out more than he'd ever killed in his lifetime, which means it was at least 1,031 uh, in that. All the leaders are dead. The, uh, the main troops apparently are killed in that. And God uses a complete moron uh, to still deliver his people. So for us complete morons, that is some good news uh, in many ways that God can still work through us. So that finishes up this era of, of judges here. And the season of, of these occasional leaders being called, some of them fantastic and amazing. Some of them, you know, they kind of rise, rise to the challenge. Some of them you wish had never made it into the page of the Bible. They're, they're a cautionary tale. They're not anyone to look up to. Um, you know, when we teach our kids these Bible stories, let's be real careful that we're not setting up some heroes that really aren't because some of these folks are just, just horrible people. So after Samson is dead and gone, uh, as it says time and again, things go back to, back to their, their old ways of, of disobeying God, following other gods, uh, doing their own thing. And in the rest of Judges, if you read it, uh, it's not something that if, you're, if your kid's reading age, you don't want to sit them down and say, you know what, just read the second half of Judges. We'll talk about it at dinner table. It, it's really... Parental guidance is absolutely required because it is the most brutal and heinous accounts of things that take place. Uh, the attempted rape of, of some men, the, the throwing of a concubine out the door so they'll take her instead, her being violated endlessly throughout the night, uh, still alive enough to drag herself to the, uh, to the doorstep. Uh, because she's property, uh, the offense is not so much that she was raped, but only that the guy's property was violated. He throws her on the donkey. She dies somewhere in there, doesn't know. Cuts her up into 12 pieces at home, mails them out. I, I didn't do a flannel graph for that. That seemed a bit much. Uh, so that he will incite uh, his fellow tribesmen uh, to go on this genocidal rampage against the tribe that, that was semi-responsible for what took place. Things like that just happen again and again. And it is horrific. And we read that, we wonder, why would God put this in here? Because uh, sometimes we think, because it's in the Bible, it must be, like, aren't these heroes? Well, if you read it all, you find out it's not. And these stories that seem to have no commentary at first, uh, I think do reveal some of what was set in motion way back here. That this is where the fall gets us. And here's where I think the critique comes in. And this is sort of the hinge verse of this whole series that we're doing. It's in Judges chapter 21, verse 25. And I think this is the criticism, the, the critique of the evil that's been taking place. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and all the people did what was right in their own eyes. And so it raises the question, is it just because they haven't had the right leaders? Well, they had some amazing ones. I actually think it's the second half of that verse that's the problem. <laughs> All the people did what was right in their own eyes. And so God has to de deal with this because this 
is not working. And it's fascinating to me how God sort of works with people. And you, and you see the developmental side of, of, of the people of God. I don't think God changes in the sense that he's not complete in and of himself, but I think you'd be kind of foolish not to see some progress in how God's people grasp the one true God and the nature of that God. And he works with him over time and history. That's part of the scope of this. Well, he calls, he raises up a prophet, which, you know, is not unusual. Those happen uh, many times. Uh, this prophet's name is Samuel. He comes here after this, uh, this set of incidents. And uh, real, real briefly, because Samuel's sort of the transition to this. Uh, Samuel is, is, is chosen as a, as a young boy, in fact. His mom, who miraculously conceives, devotes him to the temple. He goes and lives there. And he is raised as a godly man uh, who is a prophet of God and a priest. Um, but in his old age, all these problems have not been solved. So that we find in 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, verse 4, it says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, You are old. That's a nice opening. You're old and your sons do not follow in your ways. Appoint for us then a king to govern us. See, so they thought it was the first half of that verse that was the problem. We do not have a king. They said, give us a king to govern us, like other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to govern us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. And it says in verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people and all they say to you, for they have not rejected you. Which as leaders, we can sometimes confuse ourselves with God. That's, that's a problem, both in being too sure of ourselves or also being too defeated. He says, they've not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And so uh, they kind of give God the finger and say, we would rather have a king. Uh, Samuel warns them, though, as God tells him to, if you choose a king, he's going to conscript your sons to be soldiers. He's going to take your daughters to be multiple wives. He's going to raise taxes. The machinery of warfare and taxation and, and all that is going to be set in motion. Are you, it's really a bad idea. 1 Samuel 8, 19 and 20. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then it will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. And so that began the era and the error in some ways of kings. Uh, they start out with Saul, who looks the part. He's uh, handsome, he's tall than everyone else. It says he even tries to hide at one point from, from all the people. In his head, he's still a head above everyone else. Uh, he turns out to be an incredible disappointment and failure. He's unfaithful to God's commands. He does his own thing. And so God says he's disqualified and tells us Samuel to go find a, a less likely candidate in some ways. He goes and finds the young shepherd boy David and anoints him to be king, uh, which eventually he'll grow into that role. Uh, you may know the most famous part. Um, in fact, I'm not going to go into detail on David for, for time, uh, but we did a series this summer. Uh, actually, it was six parts. It was six messages in two different parts. The first three was David, the rise of a king, and the second three was David, the fall of a man. Uh, that's really good content uh, if you want some more in-depth stuff of David. But the most famous story that you've got to have in a flannel graph is the one that sort of made him famous and began to raised him in everyone's estimation. That's where he was the only one willing to go after Goliath, who was the Philistine, because that was who they were dealing with. Uh, he's bringing bread to his brothers. He's not even a soldier. No one will go and fight on one-on-one battle. He says, I will do it. Uh, Saul tries to give him his armor, which doesn't fit him. Instead, he says, you know, let me just be me. Gets the five smooth stones, knocks Goliath out, and then, of course, uh, uh, cuts his head off. And... Uh, and they start singing songs about him. You know, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And so David becomes eminently successful eventually in his, in his rule and reign as king. And ever afterwards, the people of God viewed David as the ideal king, even though he was clearly a messed up guy. Again, there's only one here in the Bible, and it's also not David. Um, but they considered him the ideal king, he began a, a dynasty that from then on, it was through his bloodline that the kings of Israel came from. Uh, it actually lasted over 400 years, his, his dynasty, until the, the state broke up and fell apart in 587 B.C. And so we'll end this 
section here with the third king, because really it's the last king where things are kind of going okay, and that was, uh, was King Solomon, who happened to be the son of David, um, uh, by Bathsheba, which is also interesting, because uh, that didn't start off well. Uh, Solomon, the third king, and the reason I'm going to stop here, Scott will pick this up next week, but this is really the last king, only three into it, before things start really going, literally breaking apart. And this whole idea that let's be like other nations, turns out that's not going to solve that problem either. We keep trying different stuff. And so here's a little bit of Solomon. It says that Gibeon, at 1 Kings 3, Verse 5, at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask what I should give you. Because God, who raises up leaders, wants to give them victory. And so God is concerned and cares on how his leaders and his people, um, how he can be their God. He's not distant and aloof. He really wants uh, that relationship, that connection. And then Solomon makes a fascinating request in in this dream state. In 1 Kings 3, verse 9, he says, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people. He doesn't ask for wealth or fame. He says, Give me an understanding mind to govern your people, able to discern between good and evil. For who can govern this, your great people? So back in the garden, whether it was fully literal or metaphorical, the issue there was they, they now had the knowledge of good and evil. But knowledge does not equal discernment. Solomon knows what good and evil is, but he wants to discern which one to choose. So he prays to God for wisdom, and God grants it. And he says, in fact, because you didn't ask for the other stuff, those will come along as well. Uh, But you will be wise unlike anyone before you or anyone after you. And so Solomon uh, actually is very successful as a king. His personal life, if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, he finds out that all the riches in the world Don't solve any of these issues that we've been talking about either. Um, But God blesses Solomon's reign, and Solomon is able to fulfill the uh, the dream of his father, David, of building a a permanent uh, place of worship for for God's people and for God's presence to manifest itself, to house the Ark of the Covenant that uh, we found about last week. And he constructs a temple. And there's where we end. We've got a king, we've got a temple. Everything's going to be all right. But one of the things that Solomon realized in his prayer, that's sort of the final plot point that we'll share here, is that no matter who sits on the throne, it's God who is king. And so... He fulfills his dream, 2 Chronicles 2.1, his dad's dream. It says, Solomon decided to build a temple for the name of the Lord and a royal palace for himself. Yeah, that's there too. So as we look at this scope, this grand scope of rulers and kings and the problems they're trying to solve, we see there's lots of temporary solutions. Because the issue that we find ourselves dealing with uh, you know, sort of the underlying purpose in these stories is the issue of, of the throne. Of what does rule and lead our lives. And there's a truism that's fairly simple. I don't know if it's terribly profound. But the truism is that a throne can only seat one king. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, end of verse 31. They say, see, something greater than Solomon is here. Gospel of John, chapter 2, verse 19 through 21. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, this temple's been under construction for 46 years because it's always being destroyed and ruined, and there's a new building project you know, centuries later after this. Uh, And you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. A throne can only seat one king. And as we close in prayer, 
I would just ask you to reflect on the extent that there's, there's a throne at work in your life. Who is sitting there? For me, I often try to put myself there, which makes me incredibly thankful uh, that on my best days, I try to serve a king who is willing to come off the throne. The throne can only seat one king. Let us pray. So God, we do thank you for these stories that, that cut through our defenses, that take root in our minds and hearts, and that the simplicity of, of the telling of them, even in this format, uh, can have a profound effect because it's your living word. And so my prayer is that we would see within these stories, within the plot, our own peace, that we would see in the Debras, the Gideons, the Samsons, the Sauls, the Davids, and the Solomons, aspects of ourselves, and that we would acknowledge there's a throne at the center of our lives, and it's not a two-seater. Someone's going to be on that. We thank you, Jesus, that you came down from the throne to actually walk and live amongst us because all the other attempts at solving the problems that started back in the garden were failures. The sacrifices, the judges, the kings, the prophets, we needed one who was the perfect fulfillment and example of all of those. And so thank you that you came and brought that. And as we prepare for communion, we, we also pray that as those of us choose to approach that table because we seek to follow after you in our own imperfect ways, that as we break that bread, we will remember your broken body because when you come off the throne, you risk life and limb. And you did that for us. As we dip it in the wine of the juice there on the table, we remember your spilled blood because instead of being a king who shed blood of others, you were a king who offered his own blood cover the sins we could not cover ourselves. And as we take and eat and continue to worship and celebrate, we are so thankful that you did not stay dead, but you rose victorious and are seated on that throne at the right hand of God the Father and will return again someday to bring to completion this whole story that we're a part of. We thank you for that, and we pray these things in the name of the risen Christ who sits on the throne. Amen. This has been the Artisan Church Podcast. To receive future podcasts, go to www.artisanchurch.com slash podcast or subscribe on iTunes. Thank you for listening.